Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Good to be with you today. I am Caleb Harper, Pastor Connections here. And I am so glad to be bringing the word today. So today, if you have your Bibles, let's jump into James 5. James 5, 7 through 12. It's great to have my in-laws here. I thought of changing my sermon to talk about gluttony because she's such a good cook. I just ate so much of that food. But it's great to be with you. So James 5, 7 through 12. Today, the title is Suffering Faithfully experiencing Jesus in the midst of trials. I told Russell, this seems like the kind of day that we would talk a little bit about suffering, suffering faithfully, experiencing Jesus in the midst of trials. Let's read James 5, 7 through 12. It says this, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that Christ suffered for us and suffered with us. Help us to patiently endure our circumstances, Father. Let your severe mercy shape us. Lord, I pray that you'd give us wisdom as we explore your word today, that you would illuminate the word of God to us and bring it to bear in our lives. And we ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen. So about a week ago, I think a week and a half ago, I decided to, oh, I I did decide to go to a mission trip to Ecuador. And on that particular trip, I decided that I would read a book called Silence by Shushaku Endu. And it's a historical novel, it's an interesting novel, based upon the 17th century persecution of Christian priests in Japan. And because the Catholic priests were bold martyrs and would go to their deaths boldly, the Japanese authorities decided that what they would do is they would take a different approach. And so what they decided to do was torture the priests' converts in front of them. You can imagine this was really effective in getting priests to recant. And so what happens is Christianity is quickly uprooted from Japan. And as I was reading the book Silence, really the book follows one priest named Rodriguez. And in it, he's confronted about the suffering that he's experiencing and the silence that he feels God has toward him. Throughout the story, he wishes that that God would move or speak or do something. And Rodriguez always wants to see Christ's literal face. He wants to see the face of Jesus, and he thinks, if I see the face of Jesus, I'll be able to suffer well. 
Eventually, he's actually taken captive because he's betrayed by one of his converts. And in prison, his very Christian calling becomes questioned. In fact, every doubt he's ever had becomes magnified in this dark Japanese prison. In fact, God's silence becomes unbearable. And he's left with little choice but to consider betraying himself or God. So like the priest, as I read this, I sometimes thought about our own trials. Sometimes God seems distant and disengaged in our trials. Sometimes he seems silent. As I read this, I thought, you know, trials really can weaken my faith and it really can weaken your faith. And our friends may know it, might not know it, but in fact, our confidence may be shaken in God. So the lingering question for me was, how do you remain faithful in our suffering? And so what I want us to learn today, when we look at this passage, when we look at James 5, we're going to see that because of the compassion of Jesus, we are empowered to suffer faithfully. You see this behind the screen. We're talking about because of the compassion of Jesus, we are empowered to suffer faithfully. But how does James define suffering? So we have to think about how, how does this suffering come about? What is he talking about when he mentions this in the text? Well, James, when he mentions suffering, he's actually including both when he mentions trials, excuse me, he's including both suffering and persecution. So suffering is that idea of living in a fallen or cursed world, right? It's the idea that there's global, that there's personal, that there's relational evil. So we have sickness, we have typhoons, we have really strong winds, we have death, we have deformities, we have broken relationships. And then James also includes persecution, now, persecution is experiencing either by a group or an individual, and you may experience this, maybe economic or vocational abuse, maybe death or threats or violence because of one's calling in Christ. So even though you may not be experiencing violence, you could actually be experiencing persecution. Now, just because Starbucks doesn't have Christmas cups doesn't mean we're experiencing persecution, right? <laughs> So no matter what hardship we're going through, persecution or suffering, James says that you're facing a trial. And for me, as we enter a season of Thanksgiving, I kind of ask myself, why do I need to know about trials? Why do I need to have part of my Christian experience being dealing with trials? In fact, popular theology says this, the one should minimize our suffering and maximize our happiness. If you're suffering today, you may even think that you're doing something wrong, and so you seek escape. Many of us, including myself, have often misunderstood the Christian call. In Scripture, Christ does call us to take up our cross, and Paul exhorts us to suffer as good soldiers. So we see that we're supposed to endure suffering, not just escape it. Well, thanks, Caleb. This is super encouraging today. <laughs> but on the other hand, you may have come in here today breaking under the weight of your circumstances. Your circumstances may feel crushing. You may feel the pain so intimately that you're someone who is acquainted with sorrow and grief. And I would say to you that I'm speaking to you today. Maybe you are ready to break under the weight, but by God's grace, you're hearing this scripture spoken to you. So what we find in scripture is that Christianity actually calls us to endure our crucible. 
And in order to find life, we actually lose it. So God may be calling us to enter a season of suffering and to do so patiently for his glory and your good. Now, I need to be honest. I don't normally break away, but I need to be honest here and say that actually this week has been a bit of a struggle myself as I prepared this sermon. And that's because I'm currently experiencing a season of suffering. And I don't say that for pity per se. I say that because often when you hear someone speak, it's the idea, and this can be good, where someone has come through and said, hey, come join me through this. This is what I've learned through this experience. And I, I have the answers here. And what I have to tell you today is that I'm in the midst of it. So I'm kind of like one beggar who's found some food and found some hope, and I'm telling another beggar, hey, this is where I think we can go. But I want you to know I'm still questioning, still thinking, still wondering. I'm not going to be able to solve the problem of evil today. So that said, as we examine James 5, 7 through 12, I believe that if we suffer, when we suffer faithfully, we experience and understand Jesus' compassion first. So how do we read James, though? Before we jump into James, just a couple things. How do we read James? Well, two things, two things. First, we need to know that the book of James echoes the life and teachings of Jesus. And Jeff has alerted us to this thought, that the idea that James is, is in fact, indebted to the teachings of Jesus and to the life of Jesus. In fact, one of Jesus' sayings are said right in our text. So James is not writing the letter devoid of the story of Jesus. In fact, he's writing the letter through the lens of the life and teachings of Jesus. So we have to understand that in order to understand the letter, we have to understand that James writes it for us to point to Jesus so that the letter points to Christ. Secondly, one of James' major themes for Christians is to be doers of the word. So we've talked about that before, and in our passage, actually being a doer of the word is to suffer patiently. So what James is saying is we're actually deeply shaped in our responses to trials. So for James, remaining joyfully faithful in trials is at the heart of Christian experience and practice. So we remember as we look at the text, Jesus' life and teachings are the stage for James' writings. Right? We don't often pay attention to the stage itself, but without the stage, the play would be impossible. So in our text, we're going to see two exhortations in this particular text. We're going to see first that because Jesus is returning, we can suffer patiently, and because Jesus' merciful purposes, we can suffer steadfastly. We'll come back to those if you didn't get those. Exhortation is the idea of encouragement with strong pressure. That's kind of how it's translated. Encouragement with strong pressure to do. So as we explore these two encouragements and we'll see two minor warnings, what I want you to see is I want you to see your trials in light of Jesus' compassion. And this is going to be hard to do, but I want us to find a new perspective or have a fuller perspective today of our suffering. So let's look at the first exhortation or encouragement with some pressure, and that is because Jesus is returning, we can suffer patiently. And in this first section of our text, we see that as Christians, our patient waiting depends on an unseen hope. As Christians, our patient waiting depends on an unseen hope. Join me in verse seven. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. 
See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. So James first exhorts his audience, he encourages his audience to be patient. Patient is the idea of being long-suffering or to wait under the pressure and not react in evil when you're going through suffering. Interestingly, James highlights one of the major themes in our Christian life, and that is waiting. The scriptures are full of verses about waiting, but in Psalms 27, 14, the psalmist tells us this, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. So waiting is fundamental to our Christian experience and waiting patiently. But what are we waiting for? Well, James tells us, if you look into the next verse, it says, until the coming of the Lord. So we wait for the return of our king. Again, scripture talks about waiting for our king quite a lot. The New Testament is replete with references. And one reference we have is 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And that's where Paul states this. He says, and wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. So when we wait and deeply long for the king, our desires are pointed towards our loving heavenly father. We wait for our rescue. We can look past our circumstances because we know the ending. So in the next verse, James uses a familiar example to his audience, but maybe not as much to ours. He says this, uh, it's more for the agrarian audience. He writes, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. So the early and the late rains, that's basically just in Palestinian climate, there was two seasonal rainy systems or, 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 or seasons that came. And so he's encouraging them to wait for these particular seasons. So obviously, what do we learn from the farmer? Well, the farmer can't control the seasons, right? He can't control the rains. In fact, in the first century, uh, when you were farming, it was a very, it could be a deadly trade, right? It was one of the few, but it was a deadly trade. Without the rain, you're possibly your whole livelihood and survival could be lost. So here we're reminded that as farmers banked their livelihood and survival on the rains, so we bank our livelihood and our lives on Jesus' return. So as a child, uh, I loved Christmas. And any time that there's a big event, I have trouble sleeping. Uh, I should say I did have trouble. Well, that's not true. I do have trouble sleeping. Whenever there's a big event coming, I wake up multiple times, ask my wife. It's a real joy to be with me. But in fact, so when I get excited, there's that kind of that expectation that just builds in my heart. And so as a kid, and some of you can relate to this, as we even have our children here today, that as we wait for Christmas, we kind of wait for the future glory, if you will, of gifts, right? So for me, the fact that I was out of school, that didn't compare to the fact that I was going to get particular gifts. And I waited expectantly, and I waited joyfully. And we wait in the same way. So not only do we see as Christians that our patience depends on an unseen hope, which is Jesus' return, but as Christians, our patience is anchored to Christ's return. As Christians, our patience is, is anchored to Christ's return. Look, at the, look with me at verse eight. It says this, you also be patient. There's James again, just being very declarative. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
So in light of what we heard, James again commands us to be patient. But he says this word, establish your hearts. Literally, that means to establish in a place. So it's to establish your heart then is to center your mind, your will, your emotions, in fact, your very being on Christ and his return. Christ is the place. So James is telling us to recenter our hearts on Jesus, the rock, recenter on the rock. And in the fact that we will one day be perfectly united with Christ. So very quickly, what do I mean by centering yourself? That can sound like very Christianese language. Well, I mean taking Christ's presence, his peace, and his love, and making them your own. Well, how do we do this? In order to do this, we find time to be with God alone. We center ourselves through silence, meditation, through the word of God, and through prayer. We're centering ourselves back on Christ. Part of centering yourself on Jesus is allowing his love to become your own. So as a result of centering our hearts on Christ, we can remain patient. James then states in in the next section of that verse, it says, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So it is at hand is the idea that it's near, but you may be looking at this verse and saying, well, 2,000 years out from the return from Christ's death, I'm not sensing its nearness, James. You seem to have missed it by a large mark. Really, what James and the Bible, what scripture is telling us when we look at the whole council, is it's saying that the Lord's return is imminent. The idea that it could happen at any time. The Lord's return is imminent. It could happen at any time. So James is encouraging his persecuted audience that they can wait for the judge who will right all their wrongs and reward their faithfulness. Like James' audience, when we peacefully center on the Lord's return, we are not easily shaken. We prove that our faith is not dead, but actually it lives and thrives, in fact, through trials. So like a veteran coming home from war, intent on marrying his lover, they wait for their special unification. Though they're separated, the union in marriage will be much more sweeter on that marriage day. As the couple awaits, they look forward to when relationally, spiritually, and physically, they will be united completely to their lover. And we too desire our lover's coming. So we've seen as Christians, our patience is anchored to Christ's return, but we also encounter our first minor warning. And these are both to do with our tongue. It doesn't surprise us here that James again mentions the tongue. The warning is this, grumbling shows our distrust in the return of the judge. So in verse nine, James warns us, if you look down, it says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. So often when experiencing trials, the easiest thing to do is to grumble against someone else you can see who in fact may be causing that even more in your heart and actually may be causing that particular circumstances. So we say things like, if only my partner would be more kind, I could endure this marriage, right? If only the doctor had more skill. If only my boss were less demanding. If only my teachers didn't give me as much homework, and we grumble against others, what are we doing? We're standing ourselves in judgment. So James writes, behold, the judge is standing at the door. 
The picture there is not the literal standing Jesus in a door, but the fact that the judge will come in love and in judgment, and it's near, and it's imminent. So we see when we, when we look at these verses, we see that we actually put ourselves as the judge, right? And we can never be this true judge. And we actually show that we're not waiting patiently when we begin to grumble against other peoples. We put ourselves in the place of God. So how do you not grumble? Do you just say like, well, okay, today I'm not gonna grumble against people. Well, no, we have to recognize Christ as the ultimate judge, knowing that he will right your wrongs. If they have wronged you, he will right those wrongs. He will take all evil and punish it. When we do this, we begin to view difficult people as divine invitations to respond in love rather than judgment. So let's apply this truth today. So we've learned one major point and one, one major warning. And the, the major point was this, because Jesus is returning, we can suffer patiently. Well, you may be asking, Caleb, how do you apply that to us? Well, I have to say the return of Jesus is a powerful truth, right? It's a little bit ethereal sometimes. We can think about, well, that, that's some sort of idea that's out there. But when we speak of it as Christians, we speak of it as a Christian reality. So embedded in, this, in his return, in Jesus' return, is our ultimate union to Jesus Christ. So if you are a Christian today, that's super encouraging, but you, do not, you are not perfectly unified to Jesus Christ. That will be in Jesus's final redemptive plan when he returns. So what I ask you today, and even right now, we have to wrestle this truth into our hearts. Paul talks about it, Jesus talks about it, Peter talks about it, James talks about it. It's a major truth of the New Testament. And our sufferings are actually invitations. And I'm not saying this is the only reason you're going through suffering, hear me clearly. But they can be invitations to actually center our lives back on Jesus and look to his ultimate rescue. It is an opportunity to be reminded that your lover is coming back. That you're made for more than your trials. You are bigger than the trials facing you. So what will his coming look like? Well, if you'd like to turn with me to Revelation five, uh, 21, not five, way off. Revelation 21, one through four. And they'll be behind the screen. They'll be on the screen behind me if you would like to just follow along. But Revelation 21 explains what will this look like? And really, this, the beautiful thing about this text is it really doesn't need any explanation. So John's saying, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming out from heaven, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse four says this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Man, this is the meeting of the two worlds. This is the colliding of heaven of earth, of heaven actually coming down to earth and making all things new. 
This is as real as baseball and apple pie or for Oklahomans, for wind and football. This is a literal reality that we speak about. So we don't wait on some perfect hallucination up in the clouds playing harps, right? We actually wait on a realized existence. We're not, we right now are living in a dreamy, haze-like state, but we're actually waiting to experience true life and perfect human flourishing. As Tolkien wrote, of course, I'd have to quote Tolkien every time I preach, but as Tolkien wrote, he says this, is everything sad going to come untrue? And for the Christian, yes, everything sad will come untrue. So therefore, our patience is grounded in the hope of Jesus. God has given us a window into the end of our sufferings. He's peeled back the curtain of eternity and we can look and see the final outcome. So what James does for us, brothers and sisters, is he zooms out and lets us see our circumstances in light of Jesus' return. So we endure not by seeing some escape plan, not by seeing the next step, not by knowing the complete picture, but by knowing Jesus is mine. And because he loves me, he's coming for me. So as we suffer, we can wait on the Lord because he shall renew our strength. We will mount up with wings like eagles. We will run and we will not be weary. We shall walk and not faint. So to cultivate true patience, we center ourselves on the return of our king. So we looked at our first encouragement, our first exhortation, our encouragement with strong pressure. And now we're gonna look at our second exhortation or encouragement. And that is because of Jesus' merciful purposes, we can suffer steadfastly. Because of Jesus' merciful purposes, we can suffer steadfastly. As we explore this, we're going to see that we are encouraged to remain steadfast because of the example of others. So in verse 10 and 11, it says this, if you want to look with me, James 5, verse 10 and 11 says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. So James is actually reminding his Jewish readers. He's saying, contemplate some of your heroes, right? Think of Abraham who waited patiently for a son. Think of, think of Joseph who waited for seven years in a prison. Think of Moses who led his people through trials and yet endured faithfully. And then finally, think of Christ who suffered perfectly. He was reviled, betrayed, and killed, and yet he endured steadfastly. Now the key here is James actually writes, we consider those blessed. And the word blessed actually denotes the meaning that they are fully satisfied. So these saints remain steadfast through their sufferings because they were fully satisfied with God. So we really see that the key there is because these saints are satisfied in God, therefore they remain steadfast. But we can't fully understand this until we see the next part of the verse, which is crucial for understanding our stories. So we see that Christians were encouraged by those who remain steadfast, but we actually should remain steadfast when we see the Lord's compassionate purposes. We remain steadfast when we see the Lord's compassionate purposes. Look at 11b. So the second part of verse 11 says this, you have heard the steadfastness of Job. 
and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So again, it says, you have heard the steadfastness of Job. Steadfastness is literally meaning to bear up under. What James is saying is that Job bore up under the weight of his suffering. In the midst of his doubt, in his pain, his questions, if you read Job, it's just all questions. Certainly he had questions. Job bore up under his trials. So in the story of Job, Job is actually never told why he suffers. Just if you haven't heard of the story of Job, he loses basically all his wealth, his family, and he's never told why. In fact, Job will plead his case and talk about the unfairness of his trials. So very quickly, just a side note here, bearing up under doesn't mean that you don't have questions. It actually means embracing God in the midst of those questions. Because even James, uh, not James, sorry, even Job's wife tells Job to curse God and die. What a helpful wife there. But yet he remains faithful to God. Finally, God actually, and, and, and Jeff uh, reiterated this a little bit last Sunday, when, when God comes back and actually just asks a bunch of questions of Job, and really what happens is God reveals more of himself and reveals more of Job's limitations. God reveals more of himself and reveals more of Job's limitations. At the end of Job, you'll see in the last chapter, there's kind of this time where Job is rewarded. It almost seems like an, like an amendment, like just an add-on at the end. And we find James, uh, excuse me, Job is rewarded with wealth again, with family. But I want you to know that he never knew why he suffered. This is the most frustrating and comforting thing to me when I explore the story of Job. It's comforting. Well, first we'll say it's comforting because I see that God's purposes are worked out in Job, but it's frustrating because I know that I probably won't ever know to the full extent why I suffered until this, till the next side of glory. I really can't understand why I suffered. And Job didn't get the answer either. We often in our suffering don't get the complete picture. And that can be very frustrating, but let's move on as we think about this. For James, Job really pictures that, that Job is a person who is steadfast, who bears up under the weight, even when Job couldn't understand. In fact, Job will say this, these beautiful words. He'll say, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, Job 121. So I want you to know it's, it's crucial though that we understand that Job or ourselves don't actually bear up on our own. Often we can look and say, okay, just like Christ suffered, therefore I ought to suffer as well. So I can see that Jesus was pinned to the cross and in that way in which he suffered, I ought to suffer in the same way. But if we do that, we'll actually be crushed under the weight of our circumstances. Yes, Jesus is a good example, but we actually must have Christ bear up with us. That's why Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. So together we bear up under the burden. So Jesus is bearing with you. Only in Christ can you endure. 
You can't look to only Christ pinned on a tree. You actually need Jesus's empowerment. And he calls you and says, actually, I'll take the yoke with you and I will bear the weight under it. And who is the stronger one in that group? Obviously, Jesus. So the next phrase in the verse is actually the most important to this entire passage and maybe to our message. To not only survive suffering, but to actually thrive in the midst of it. And verse 11, you see the second half of that verse. It says, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Fascinating. James makes, takes a hard left turn, which is pretty normal for him, and makes this very personal. He says, you have seen the compassionate purposes and mercy of God. Remember, as, as Jeff has told us, James' audience is suffering persecution, right? They're being led like sheep to the slaughter. How are they seeing the compassion of God? Well, the answer is in Jesus Christ. As we mentioned at the beginning of this letter, the story of the letter of James is not devoid of the story of Jesus. Where would they have seen the compassionate purposes of God? Well, they would have seen them in the story of God's love for humanity. From Adam to Jesus and from Jesus to you and me, God pursues his people. And it's comforting for me like a husband pursues his wife in love, God went after us. His compassion led him to take on flesh and die. And his grace saves us from our debt of sin. Ultimately, I and you have seen the compassion and mercy of God through Jesus Christ on the cross. So the cross not only saves us, as we're thankful for that, but it actually reimagines our stories in the midst of God's cosmic story. This is why it helps us in suffering. Eugene Peterson actually writes, if we are going to live appropriately, we must be aware that we are living in the middle of a story that was begun and will be concluded by another, and that this other is God. To live appropriately, we must understand we're in the middle of a story that's gonna be concluded by another and that other is God. So because of the compassion of God, we can begin to understand ourselves, our world, and our place in it. Truly in Christ's death, we have seen Jesus' compassionate purposes. You know, history tells us that James was actually martyred by being pushed from the temple mount. So the author, James, here that wrote these letters. And in fact, when he landed, James was still alive. And when the crowd gathered around James, they actually listened, he was mumbling something. And when they leaned closely, he was actually saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The crowd then beat him to death. So James, instead of reacting in hate or anger, actually reimagined his last moments as a time of forgiveness. Because he understood the compassion of Jesus in the cross, he endured faithfully and lovingly to the end. Then we come to our last warning. Let's look at that last verse, verse 12. The warning is this. We find a final warning. It says, speaking falsely shows our distrust in God's sovereignty. And what we find in verse 12, it says this, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. 
Let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Here what we find is is this is another part where as as I was studying, James could be switching topics here and he's, he's inclined to do that and he could be going to a new section. But I will argue and others would tend to agree that this does seem to fit at least to some degree with our passage. So it is a quote from Jesus's Sermon on the Mount when, G- when Jesus gives a more expounded version of this on the Sermon on the Mount. And simply, really the meaning means let your yes be yes and your no be no. Have simple, honest, truthful communication. Well, when is it easiest to change your yes to a no? When's it easiest to double speak? Well, it's easiest to complicate your language when you're going through trials. When you're suffering persecution, it's easiest to change our yes to a no, right? We don't want to tell our friends or maybe our accusers that we're struggling with doubt, we're struggling with uncertainty and fear. And James encourages us, especially those who are suffering in persecution, to speak plainly and not forsake your values. So like Peter, when he betrayed Jesus on the night of Jesus's death, when the face of Jesus becomes obscured, it's actually easiest to make our yes be no and our no mean yes. So what do we learn from the mercy of Christ so that we can suffer steadfastly? As we think about the warning and we think about our above points about suffering steadfastly, about bearing up under the weight, what do we learn from these two thoughts? Well, as we think about how one really remains faithful, we get to the crux of our point today. We remain faithful when we actually experience the compassion of Jesus Christ. So James and myself really only offer one thing here and that is Jesus Christ. Through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we actually can interpret our stories through that lens. We understand our purposes through the death of Christ. We can reinterpret our situation and even reimagine our future because we know the end. And because of Christ, we're fundamentally changed by his grace. But this kind of grace is actually a costly grace. In fact, it requires our very being to die. It calls us to suffer with him and through suffering experience more of his grace. As he died for us, he asked us to die to ourselves in suffering. And when we embrace him and only him, we find everything else thrown in. So for you, the holidays may be a time where you're experiencing or maybe you will experience trial or suffering. You may feel like sometimes I feel we're not ready to endure what the next few months is gonna hold for us. And we find that James' source of faithfulness is actually in understanding God's loving purposes. And like James, the promise of Jesus' compassion can shape our imagination only when we're captivated with the vision of Christ's love. So I ask you today, are you feeling like giving up? Look to the cross. Are you feeling overwhelmed? Center yourself on Jesus. Do you think you can't take any more pain than I ask you to go to Christ and ask him to bear it up with you? Only in being captivated in Christ's love can we actually endure. 
So let me speak to the Christian real quick. If you're today, you're following Jesus, I say maybe you need to experience this Jesus of great mercy. As you're ready to face this trial, maybe you need to renew yourself at the table and remind yourselves that he loves you. Ask him that he would bear up under the weight with you, that he would come up underneath and bear the weight of this trial with you. For those of you who maybe don't know Jesus or maybe you do, but you haven't experienced this compassionate purpose of God, I ask, would you come to the person of Jesus? Would you consider, like I often have to do, taking our pain, our trials, and our sins to Christ? Would you pray that God's grace would help you reimagine your life as a son or daughter of Jesus Christ? So I don't know what you've been told, but Christ thinks kindly towards you. And God in Christ waits for your embrace. As I spent time reading the book Silence, uh, I read about Rodriguez. And uh, he always desired to see the true face of Jesus, as I said in the beginning. And he wanted to see the face literally and visibly in his mind, mind's eyes. And I contemplated whether or not I would like to see the same thing. And I contemplated this while I was on the plane, which was a little frightful at first. I was like, Lord, I want to see your face. Well, not that much. Don't, not that, yeah. But as I thought about it, I thought that really what Rodriguez is doing is he's trying to see Christ's face clearly so that he could suffer more honorably, right? And as I considered this, I understood that in our suffering, we actually look most like our Savior when we are undergoing trials. And when we suffer, we're actually resembling Christ most clearly. And unlike Moses, we, the veil cannot cover his glory in us. So I encourage you, we don't see Christ's face on earth, but we do see it in our brothers and sisters who endure their crosses. And as I thought about this even more, I know that I see Jesus' face in others, but the message from Rodriguez was deeper still. It's not only that we resemble or look like Jesus in our trials, but actually by enduring them patiently and faithfully, we become like him. As we share in our sufferings with Jesus, we actually gain a deeper union to Christ. And only in our union to Christ and his suffering do we actually begin to understand the graciousness and goodness of God. So as we think about this message, by experiencing the compassion of Jesus, we can endure faithfully and will be transformed into the image of his dear son. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I pray that we'd find a deeper union to you through our trials. Lord, help us center ourselves on you. Help us to experience your compassion at the cross. Lord, I pray for people in this room. I pray that you'd help them bear up under the weight. I pray that you'd help them experience more of you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.